Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of November 2nd, 2023. My name is Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. Developer pauses Belmar Park Development, 777 South Yarrow Street Department Complex, on hold for two months after protests by Riley Dunn for the Jeffco transcript. Suspects charged in alleged theft of body parts from Wheat Ridge Cemetery by Joe Davis for the Jeffco transcript. Youngsters come out in droves for trick-or-treat. Annual local Halloween celebration, a hoot. By Riley Dunn for the Arvada Press. Down to a science. High school students competes in Dinosaur Ridge's annual quiz bowl. By Corinne Westerman for the Golden Transcript. And following up with various articles. Developer pauses Belmar Park Development, 777 South Yarrow Street Apartment Complex, on hold for two months after protests by Riley Dunn. In the latest turn of events for the embattled developments planned for 777 South Yarrow Street, which would feature 412 units but has raised concerns over its location adjacent to Belmar Park, developer Kyroy Residential has halted the project for two months. The pause will allow the developer to hear from community members objecting to the project, a letter from Kyroy to Lakewood's City Council said. Over the last few weeks, tensions have mounted between neighbors of the park and stakeholders for the project, leading one resident to chain herself to a tree. Concerns from residents have as chiefly centered around the development's environmental impacts. The proposal's current iteration would see the felling of 69 trees and abuts Belmar Park, which is considered an unofficial bird sanctuary by many residents. Some contention has arisen over the procedure of the development. Kairoy Residential owns 777 South Yarrow Street, which is located within an urban renewal area in Lakewood. Because of development rules pertaining to the urban renewal tract, the property falls within a use-by-right designation, meaning the city council cannot vote on it. Tyler Sibley, the principal of development for Kyroy, said the developer had contacted city team council members to schedule forums to field concerns and suggestions from residents. We want to be good neighbors and understand that while a neighboring neighborhood meeting wasn't a required part of the pro- development process, we should have worked to, to have a community discussion because of the importance of the neighboring park, Sibley said in an email to Lakewood's City Council. Lakewood Mayor Pro Tem Wendy Strom said that she believes community members' frustrations come from the lack of a public process for the development. The community's frustration about this, honestly, is that they don't have any control, Strom said. And they don't. None of us do. We really are hoping that the developer will truly show up since sincerely wanting to be a good neighbor and consider some of the proposals that might be made. 
However, community members voiced displeasure with the way things have been handled by the city council. Lakewood resident Regina Hopkins said she didn't feel listened to by most of council. Hopkins cited council member Anita Springsteen as the lone exception when voicing concerns about the project. The rest of these people on council, they're basically useless, Hopkins said. They're not listening to the public, and that's their job, to be respecting the majority's will, and they were absolutely not responding to the majority's will. Respecting the majority's will. That whole council needs to be thrown out. It is more toxic than my last relationship. Strom said she hopes Kyroy listens to community members during the upcoming community input session, but added that without much legal wiggle room, there may not be much to be done. I am hopeful, although there is not a lot of teeth legally. Kyroy is only doing it because the community showed up and said, we want better, and I'm glad they did, Strom said. Strom continued to say that she hopes the developer addresses parking concerns for the area and think about affordable housing units. Quote, I would like to see them include affordable housing units, Strom said. We need to talk about parking. The conversation about parking includes the owner. The city can look at it. It's a little tiny street when you think about the library traffic and 412 unit traffic in there. Hopkins said that the community's efforts to stop the development will note abate and sees this case as being symptomatic of a larger problem with diminishing green spaces in Lakewood. Our grassroots efforts are not going to stop, Hopkins said. We're going to continue to fight for this because we know this is critical to save this in Lakewood. We keep losing open space and parkland every single day, and that is not acceptable as we have a value we uphold in Colorado. Strom concluded by stating that she feels the victory in this situation is the developer listening to residents, and added that she hoped City Council could pass a proclamation suggesting some of the residents' proposals to the developer. Not an ordinance, as had been previously discussed, and is not within the legal framework available for this development. The win here is they showed up, asked for better, we got to work, and we got something out of it that wasn't otherwise required, Strom said. Suspects charged in alleged theft of body parts from Wheat Ridge Cemetery by Joe Davis. The Jefferson County Sheriff's Office arrested John Wayne Belknap, 46, in connection with the recent theft of body parts from a tomb <clears throat> in Crown Hill Cemetery in Wee Ridge. Investigators issued a warrant for Belknap's arrest after finding evidence at the scene of the crime that connected to the suspect, according to a Sheriff's Office press release. Belknap is charged with felony criminal mischief, abuse of a corpse, third-degree burglary, theft, and desecration of a venerated object. He is being held at the Jefferson County Jail, according to the press release. According to investigators, Belknap appears to have no relation to the deceased. They also don't see a connection between Belknap and any of the tombs surrounding the one he allegedly desecrated. The Jeffco transcript reported on the October 11th early morning discovery of the damaged mausoleum, crypt, and casket in which body parts were allegedly stolen. 
Investigators believe that the suspect entered the cemetery in the middle of the night and forced his way into the mausoleum and crypt. Then he pried open the casket to remove the remains. The investigators have not recovered the stolen remains, according to the press release. The damage to the mausoleum, crypt, and casket is expected to cost about $30,000 to repair. For more information, check out the Jeffco Sheriff's Civic Alert. Down to a science. High school students compete in Dinosaur Ridge's annual quiz bowl by Corinne Westerman. For high school students who love geology, paleontology, and other general science questions, Dinosaur Ridge has the perfect way to test their knowledge. The organization hosted 18 teams from across the state for its annual science quiz bowl October 21st of the Colorado School of Mines campus. After six rounds of competition, teams from Grand Junction High School, Stargate High School, and the Classical Academy faced off in the finals. The three outbuzzed each other with on questions about fossils, plant biology, human anatomy, dinosaur ridge history, and more. After 30 questions, Grand Junction won with 13 answers over Stargate's eight and Classical Academy's four. Each member of the winning team will receive a $500 college scholarship thanks to Dinosaur Ridge and its local partners. Spokesperson Kristen Kidd said the Quiz Bowl originally started in 2019 at Lakewood High School. The idea, she explained, was to foster a passion for the sciences and to encourage young people to those subjects in higher education. The organization revived a, the Quiz Bowl last November at the Mines campus with higher stakes and more participation. This year, Rocky Mountain PBS recorded the competition, although its air dates hasn't been confirmed yet, Kid said. While some competitors were from Broomfield, Thornton, and other parts of the Denver metro, others traveled in from small towns like Yuma, Hugo, and Lake City. Kid hoped to see more teams next year, saying the Quiz Bowl could accommodate up to 24 teams. It's fun to bring these kids all together, kids said, describing the diversity of the teams and students who competed. It feels like a celebration of science. It's also a glimpse of the future. We have smart kids coming up who are passionate about pursuing science. GJHS senior Sam Goodett noted how much this year's competition played out like last year's with Grand Junction's A-team and Stargate's A-team facing off in the final round. The Tigers were down by three after the first ten questions, but came back to win the whole thing for the second consecutive year, Goodat said. It was a tighter competition than last year, he continued. We had to fight for it. Goodat was thankful for the $500 college scholarship, saying every bit helps. He hasn't decided on a college yet, as he's looking for a program where he can double major in math and physics. After winning in both 2022 and 2023, Goodet said he really enjoys the math and geology question, but tends to struggle with paleontology. He was proud of his teammates for their second straight win, and his school's B team for finishing in fourth place. Overall, he added, the whole day was fun. Jacob Green, a Stargate junior and president of the Knowledge Bowl Club, said he enjoys the variety of topics the Quiz Bowl covers. He said it's roughly one-third geology, one-third paleontology, and one-third general science 
and Dinosaur Ridge specific questions. Green, who was on last year's second place team, said this year's final round was a lot closer. He planned to return as a senior and help Stargate win the 2024 Science Quiz Bowl. Arvada youngsters come out in droves for Trick or Treat Street. Annual local Halloween celebration, A Hoot, by Riley Dunn. Hundreds of young Arvadans came to Old Town on October 27th to collect candy from business owners and community groups. The annual event was dotted with scores of Halloween costumes of many varieties. About 50 Old Town businesses and a handful of community organizations, including the Arvada Historical Society, participated in the affair. Costume contest and dancing in Old Town Square were featured attractions for this year's edition of the Halloween Tradition. Arvada City Council adopts Old Town Strategic Reinvestment Plan. Seven-year plan for Old Town includes flexible streets, activation of Old Town Square by Riley Dunn. After months of gauging public feedback, Arvada City Council has adopted a strategic reinvestment plan that will guide the city's work to improve Old Town Arvada and the remainder of the decade. The plan, adopted by a 7-0 council vote on October 23rd, suggests a number of improvements to Old Town, including streetscape work, altering the road closures, activating underutilized sites, and addressing accessibility concerns. The plan was developed with Dig Studios, a consultant which has developed, helped develop strategic plans for downtown Idaho Springs, the 16th Street Mall renovation in Denver, and Inglewood's downtown master plan. Options to change some of the road closures in Old Town to be, quote, sometimes pedestrian only, meaning that vehicles would be allowed access at different times, were also included. There are two options for this facet of the plan one which sees Old Wadsworth Boulevard, sometimes close to car traffic, between Ralston Road and Grandview Avenue. The plan also features the option to close Grandview to car traffic between Upham Street and Old Wadsworth, with one option allowing cars sometimes and one keeping the closure pedestrian only. Also addressed are accessibility concerns. The plan recommends connecting bicycle routes through Old Town, implementing bike parking, ADA parking close to corners, and an RTD Kiss and Ride mobility hub on Grandview that would aid access to public transportation. Finally, the plan also suggests proposals for activating Old Town Square. There are three options in the plan, a plaza, park, or Old Town, or Town Square model. The plaza option includes a pavilion and is centered around a stage, while the park option heavily features green space. The town square option is similar to Old Town Square's current setup. Mayor Williams' council last council meeting. After 24 years on city council, 12 as a council member, 12 as a mayor, over 1,000 combined meetings, Arvada Mayor Mark Williams' time on the dais comes to an end on October 23rd. The outgoing mayor said he felt that it was time for a new leader in Arvada and thanked the mayoral candidates, council members Lauren Simpson and John Marriott, for upholding the integrity of their roles on council while running mayoral campaigns. Williams concluded his tenure by urging folks to vote on November 7th and thanked residents for their support throughout his time 
in public service. I hope that we have as good a council moving forward as I've been blessed to have during my 24 years here, William said. We can disagree, but as long as we disagree agreeably, Arvada is going to be okay. I'm so grateful to the citizens of Arvada who were able to put aside my inadequacies and crazy times, crazy ways of dressing to elect me six times. I urge everybody to vote, Williams continued. This is the level of government that's closest to people, and we fight our darndest to keep it nonpartisan and to be able to respond to issues of our citizens in a prompt fashion, much better than the state or federal level can do. What's happening in Jefferson County? Early vote week, BOGOs and freebies. First week ballot return, stats, and more by Joe Davis. Early vote week specials. An early vote week promotion is happening throughout Jefferson County. Local businesses are offering discounts, BOGOs, and a few freebies to anyone wearing their 2023 I Voted sticker. Here were a few more specials to look for from October 26th to November 1st. Alibaba Grill and Golden, $5 off your bill of $30 or more. Colorado Tap House in Arvada, $2 off any item, plus a Colorado Tap House sticker to go with your I Voted sticker. Odyssey Beer Works in Arvada, one free beer. Wolf plus Wildflower in Wheat Ridge, buy one, get one free of any beer, wine, or alcoholic, non-alcoholic beverage. Clerk and Recorder announces first week ballot return stats. The Jefferson County Clerk and Recorder announced the returns for the first week of voting. Ballots were sent out on October 16th. By October 20th, some ballots were already returned with these results. 430,720 active voters. 4,438 ballots were returned. They also tracked the ballots received by political parties. Democrat, 31.1%. Republican, 29.7%. Unaffiliated, 38.3%. Minor parties, 0.9%. Jeffco Clerk Amanda Gonzalez wants voters to know that this election matters just as much as the presidential elections. Called a coordinated election, races like the ones being decided on November 7th are important for the communities you live in. Quote, some people call the election that's currently underway an off-year or odd-year election, but that undersells its importance. Gonzalez said, the fact is, your vote is never more powerful than it is during a coordinated election. Rather than being one of millions, your vote is one of thousands or even hundreds that will decide important issues and races that impact your community. To find out more information on voting in Jefferson County, visit VoteJeffCo.com. Catch Bonicula at Red Rocks Community College through November 4th. Remember the children's book about the family who adopts a cute little bunny and immediately things get weird? Bonicula is a Halloween classic story enjoyed by a few generations. The story is being brought on stage by Red Rocks Community College Theater Arts and Dance Department. Playwright John Klein adapted the children's book by James and Deborah Howe. Chris Jeffries composed the music for the production. Benicula is directed by RRCC's Kelly Joe Eldridge. The play is produced by Special Arrangement with plays for new audiences. 
RRCC students built the Benicula puppets while working with guest puppeteer Cindy Parr. The play announces a few fun surprises hidden in the fur. Benicula is a performance for all ages. The show opened October 26th and runs through November 4th. Here are the remaining showtimes. 7 p.m. November 2nd, 7 p.m. November 3rd, 1 p.m. November 4th. Tickets for all RRCC Theater Department productions may be purchased via the websites redrocks.cc slash tickets. Regis University hosts a dialogue on homelessness in the inaugural Regis Conversations. The Regis University Department of Sociology, Anthropology, Criminology, and Criminal Justice is hosting its first Regis Conversations on November 17th. The discussion topic is homelessness. A select panel will discuss the topic, followed by a Q&A session. The university urges the community to attend and lend their voice to the conversation. To register and for more information, check out the Regis Conversations event page. For second year, domestic violence deaths in Colorado reach all-time high. By Olivia Prinzel, The Colorado Sun. At least 94 people from 8 months to 61 years old died in Colorado in 2022 as a result of domestic violence, according to a report released by the Attorney General's office. It was the second time in two years that the number of domestic violence fatalities set an all-time high in Colorado, exceeding the previous record of 91. At least 39 people were killed last year by their current or former intimate partners, and 22 were bystanders such as family members, coworkers, or neighbors who were the victim or tried to intervene, the report said. The number of fatalities was nearly 1.5 times higher than the average number of deaths in the state since 2016 when the Colorado Domestic Violence Fatality Review Board began tracking them. The number of bystanders killed was extraordinarily high compared with years past, showing the threats the threat extends beyond domestic violence victims into the community, the Attorney General's office said. Among the deaths were six children under the age of 16, including a five-year-old who was sleeping in an apartment when a fire was set nearby in a domestic dispute. Five other children died from gunshot wounds after separate attacks, the report said. Two police officers were also shot to death when responding to domestic violence incidents, the report said. The report is a sobering reminder of the work needed to combat domestic violence across the state. Attorney General Phil Weiser said in a news release, the numbers are alarming and should catalyze action. This report provides a stark reminder that domestic violence continues to be a serious threat primarily to women. And all Coloradans must work toward greater gender equality and more robust efforts to prevent domestic violence. The board, which was set up to review data and make policy recommendations, suggested a wider use of assessment tools and organizations that work directly with domestic violence survivors to better help adults and children who are affected by domestic violence and understand the safety risks. The board also recommended developing a pilot program through the Colorado Bureau of Investigation that would foster a relationship between prosecutors, law enforcement, and the defense bar to help ensure Colorado's firearm relinquishment statutes are enforced, the report said.
There's also a need for more collaboration between the state's Maternal Mortality Prevention Program, Child Fatality Review Board, and the Office of Suicide Prevention. The report said, noting the intersection between each entity's work and the potential to analyze domestic violence fatalities in a more comprehensive way. Consistent with previous reports, firearms were the leading cause of death among domestic violence fatalities in 2022, accounting for 86% of deaths. 97% of the victims were female, and 95% of the perpetrators were male. This story is from the Colorado Sun, a journalist-owned news outlet based in Denver and covering the state. For more and to support the Colorado Sun, visit coloradosun.com. The Colorado Sun is a partner in the Colorado News Conservancy, owner of Colorado Community Media. Local Voices Rising above misinformation, Jeff goes past to path to a prosperous and balanced future. In Favor by Jansen Tidmore Work with the community for compatible, sustainable development. Opposed And Lantoon Jim Cheatham, Lynn Clemens. Rising above misinformation, Jeff goes path to a prosperous and balanced future in favor by Jansen Tidmore. Navigating the complex and emotionally charged landscape of land use and development often feels like running through a gauntlet. Across Colorado, the continuing tensions between longstanding property rights versus residents resistant to future changes, further changes, are intensifying. In Jefferson County, we're now witnessing the clash play out in real time on a proposed project that would ordinarily be a by-the-book proposal to build a new business park on a major traffic corridor. On one side, the local landowner and developer of the proposed Golden Technology Center at 5950 McIntyre Street are proposing a buy-right use-on-land zone for this very purpose for decades. On the other, it's a neighborhood opposition group seeking to discard more than a century of established Colorado property law and zoning regulations. First, let's break down the basics. Jefferson County, like every other county in Colorado, must balance the needs for consistent and sustained economic growth, balanced property tax revenue, and job opportunities. Jefferson County relies heavily on property tax revenue to fund schools, critical services like water and fire districts, and various operational needs. Unlike cities, Jeffco doesn't have the luxury of sales tax revenue to lean on. It's the property taxes paid by homeowners and businesses that keep the county running smoothly. Now, here's where the scales tip a bit. Jefferson County has a deep housing jobs imbalance with 30,000 more homes than jobs. That means that more people are commuting farther by car and to their workplaces, resulting in increased traffic congestion and emissions. And it also means that residential properties shoulder a disproportionate burden of those property taxes. This imbalance is why we must champion a strong and robust business sector. When we have more businesses occupying commercial spaces, they contribute significant tax revenues to fund critical services. The Golden Technology Center, for example, would pay an estimated $2 million per year in property taxes, or about 40 times what is being paid now. Economic diversification is good for everyone. Now let's address the elephant in the room, nimbyism and misinformation. 
Opponents of projects like the one at 5950 McIntyre increasingly play from the same playbook. Wage a campaign on Nextdoor and Facebook, whip up fear, harass public officials in public meetings and at their homes, hire PR firms, and fundraise for legal support. All of these tactics serve only to make it painful and expensive as possible to rebuild. Collectively, these tactics serve only to hurt Jefferson County's economy, which is wholly dependent on our ability to draw and keep companies that provide good jobs and power our community. These tactics fundamentally make it more difficult to do that, and it needs to be called out. We need to consider the risks of risks to our economy and the people who work there. The reality is that the proposed development is an incorporated Jeffco and is not the neighborhood devouring cancer-causing monstrosity some claim it to be. It's a by-rights use of land that aligns with decades of zoning and planning. Traffic levels would be akin to a small neighborhood, not a commercial hub or nonstop trucking logistics distribution center. It is, in point of fact, the type of flex industrial space that Jefferson County urgently needs. Ultimately, we must focus on facts and dispel nimbyism and embrace economic opportunities that benefit everyone in Jefferson County. It's not a choice between development and preservation. It's a quest for a balanced, prosperous future that upholds the values that make Jeffco unique. Jefferson County's success hinges on its ability to adapt while preserving its character. We owe it to ourselves and future generations to secure a financially stable future that maintains the services we rely on. It's time for Jeffco to rise above misinformation, welcome positive change, and support the economic prosperity that all its residents deserve. Jansen Tidmore is the president and CEO of the Jefferson County Economic Development Corporation. Work with the community for compatible, sustainable developments. Oppose. And Latoon, Jim Cheatham, Lynn Clemens. As the community coalition, McIntyre Neighbors United, we are opposing the development of a huge warehouse project that is incompatible with our neighborhoods and would be dangerous for nearby residents and wildlife. Our group includes representatives from 18 homeowner associations. We want to first make it clear that we are not NIMBYs, not in my backyard folks. We understand this site will be developed, and we don't oppose that. We just want the development to be compatible with this area. This began in August 2022, when the developer Constellation Real Estate Partners of Dallas, Texas, submitted plans to redevelop 40 acres at 5902-5950 McIntyre in unincorporated Jefferson County into distribution warehouses. Their design meets the industry definition of a distribution warehouse. Conservatively, it has a capacity for 2,000 vehicular trips per day. Because no public hearings were planned to obtain community input on this project, several community members met with the owner to learn more about this proposed development. We asked for a good neighbor agreement to ensure that new development would be as well-planned as the business park and laboratories that have occupied this site for decades. We've lived harmoniously with those neighbors up to 16 buildings at one time since the 1970s. It quickly became clear there would be no good neighbor agreements. It also became clear why. As currently proposed, this project won't be a good neighbor to nearby residential areas. The proposal, by its nature, introduces high volumes of semi-truck traffic, 24-7 operations, dangerous diesel emissions linked to cancer and asthma, and noise levels, orders of magnitude louder than limits established in state law, 
as safe for residential areas. This development would not be approved by neighboring municipal jurisdictions, including Arvada, Broomfield, and Golden. The City of Arvada's 2021 updated land use regulations prohibits building distribution warehouses adjacent to residential areas because of the dangers posed by heavy truck traffic and noise. Jefferson County is currently updating its woefully out-of-date industrial zoning and land use regulations. Updates are anticipated by May 2024 and would likely not permit this development to be built so close to residential areas. Although building a distribution warehouse adjacent to any residential community is ill-advised, the important ecological and historic features of this site make it a particularly ill-suited location for this project. The Colorado Parks and Wildlife Department warned the development would impact wildlife, including eagle habitats, on this site and adjacent Hyatt Lake. History Colorado and the Jefferson County Historical Commission have warned that this development will erase the historic landmarks in the area. To build the three planned massive warehouses, the developer proposes to move the Farmer's Highline Canal. As for economic growth, demand for distribution warehouses is already being met in northwest Denver. Many new distribution warehouses are now being built. Further, the small number of low-wage warehouse jobs this proposal might create will be reduced by drone delivery and automation. Buildings designed for innovative uses, such as those at the nearby Master Plan Course Technology Center, attract better tenants, offering higher-paying jobs. The central issue here is whether we as a community will insist on thoughtful development that preserves the very things we love most about Colorado. A clean environment, conservation of wildlife, and preservation of our rural areas and historic landmarks. Donations to promote compatible development for our area and the entire county can be made at McIntyreNeighborsUnited.org. We urge Constellation Real Estate Partners to work with the community for compatible, sustainable development. Redesign this proposal to meet noise, statutes, and updated light industrial parameters. By Jim Cheatham, President, Fieldstone HOA, Lynn Clemens, President, Westwood Villas HOA, Mary Lee Gibson, Vice President, Juniper Ridge Estates HOA, Deborah Gale, President, Stonebridge Crossing HOA, Bo Goldstein, President, Estates at Van Biber HOA, Robert Hubel, President, Marriott Orchard HOA, Kay Rees, President, Westwoods Ridge HOA, and Schweitzer, President, Wildflower Ponds HOA, Randy Seaholm, President, Ranchwood, Ryan Ranch HOA, Gina Hellesay, Ralston Valley Coalition, and LaFoon McIntyre Neighbors United Coalition. Authors include HOA Presidents McIntyre Neighbors United and the Ralston Valley Coalition. And LaFoon, member of McIntyre Neighbors United, retired from the government's accountability office, GAO, the federal watchdog agency dedicated to exposing fraud, waste, and abuse of taxpayer dollars. Gina Hallisay serves on the board of Ralston Valley Coalition, an organization supportive of compatible development in Jefferson County. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. My name is Gregory Haddock. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denverite, and Westward. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading From Grief to Groove, 
Emma Wallingford Returns to the Stage by Giles Clayson. From Denverite, I'll be reading, The Denver airport is looking for non-train ways to get people around, like very long bridges, by Rebecca Tauber. And Rocky Horror Fans Closed Out the First Full Elitch Theater Season in Decades by Kevin Beattie. From Westward, I'll be reading, Residents Excited to Return to Sun Valley as DHA Breaks Ground on Final Buildings by Katie Cheshire. And Remembering Steve Sander, Marketing Minch, on his 70th birthday by Patricia Calhoun. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. This first article is from the Denver Voice. From Grief to Groove, Emma Wallingford Returns to the Stage by Giles Clayson. Emma Wallingford is getting the band back together. After a three-year hiatus, Wallingford is performing with her band, Emma Mays and The Hip, on Thursday, October 26th at the Mercury Cafe. The Denver-based musical group was on the rise in 2019 and was even nominated that year for Westward's Best of Denver issue in the Best Soul Band category. That same year, they also played the biggest show to date for the City Park Jazz Summer Concert Series. Then, Wallingford faced two different tragedies that changed the trajectory of her life, which halted the band's ascent. Wallingford's brother took his life in 2019. In 2020, her mother died following surgery to treat lung cancer. It was just one monumental loss after another in the span of five months, Wallingford said. I still can't comprehend it sometimes. I still can't believe the instability and chaos it created in my life. Wallingford began posting a grief journal to her social media accounts. I started writing because grief is universal. It doesn't discriminate. I knew my mom was proud of my writing. I knew that it was going to help people. It just felt like the proper thing to do, to just be vulnerable. It just kind of came naturally. I decided... I'm going to start writing and sharing this and see what happens, Wallingford said. Many of Wallingford's journal entries laid bare the raw emotion so many people experience when facing grief. One post from May 2021 said simply, Here I am. It included a picture of her crying, staring directly into the camera. In the summer of 2020, Wallingford encouraged others experiencing grief to seek help and suggested speaking to their doctors about the benefits of antidepressants. I take antidepressants, and I'm not embarrassed or ashamed about it, Wallingford wrote. Some people need a little extra help getting out of bed in the morning or to calm down the unrelenting overthinking that swarms their minds, and that's okay. Some of the posts documented how Wallingford worked through her grief. For example, she posted about a ritual where she covered herself in her brother's and mother's ashes. She also wrote about releasing her loved one's ashes in different places that have significance to Wallingford. According to Wallingford, while she did not mention it in her grief journal, she said that she marveled at how she could differentiate between her mother's and brother's ashes, even from a distance, because they were different colors. Today, Wallingford understands why those experiences were meaningful to her. Carrying and releasing their ashes is just a way of taking them on experiences with me and having them present, Wallingford said. 
People go and visit grave sites. I need something more. I'm able to have this visceral wave honoring them. It just feels really cathartic to leave my mother and brother in beautiful places. Wallingford keeps a small jar of their ashes in her bedroom and has bits of their ashes embedded in some of her tattoos. She sought her own path forward, even if unusual, documenting much of it. Wallingford moved to Costa Rica, tried to have a relationship while still processing her loss, and then returned to Denver. Wallingford's goal for her journal was to help others while seeking relief herself, but the transparency wasn't always received well. My dad and I didn't talk for a minute because he had friends that were like, we're worried. Why is she posting all of this? Wallingford said. I had a friend that was saying, it's been long enough. We don't want to see it anymore. We want to see you happy. Wallingford refused to pretend she was a shiny, happy person. She feared that hiding her anguish would make her sadness all-consuming. She understood that some might feel more comfortable if she stopped writing the grief journal. But Wallingford felt that suffering in silence would make it harder to overcome the loss. She hoped by sharing her grieving process, she could help others experiencing loss and depression. According to Wallingford, she sees now that she didn't always handle her grief well. At times, she lashed out at bandmates, turned to drugs and alcohol, and pushed loved ones away. She shared all this bit by bit in real time, even if she didn't understand in the moment the harm she was causing herself and others. Wallingford didn't see her growing addiction sneaking up on her. Her brother had always been the addict in her family. His alcohol and drug use overshadowed her own. She had seen problematic addiction firsthand, but she felt her alcohol use didn't reach that degree. Eventually, she could no longer ignore the signs. In a February 2022 post, Wallingford prefaced her post with a trigger warning, saying she was entering inpatient treatment. At any rate, my coping mechanisms have become quite toxic, especially when I'm alone, Wallingford wrote. I found myself choosing a dark path when no one can judge me, and that often found me at the end of a bottle of wine. I have been stuck in the numb phase of grief, hopelessly wishing to get back to feeling anything and accessing my tears. Sometimes that only seems possible with some help with drinking and feeling my absolute worst, so I can sob and feel bad about myself. It took a year for Wallingford to get completely sober. She now has nearly seven months of sobriety. According to Wallingford, the hardest part was calling her old bandmates to apologize and see if they wanted to play together. It was amazing. They were so kind, she said. They were more concerned about me and where I'm at than my mistakes. I couldn't believe it. During their October 26th show, which is their first performance in nearly four years, the band will play covers that are meaningful to Wallingford and remind her of her brother and mother, as well as some of the band's original work. Wallingford said she isn't sure where the band might go long term. She is planning to pursue a master's degree and become a grief counselor. She knows music will always be an important part of her life. She considers the band's first reunion show, Back, will be another step in her healing process. You can count on Wallingford to share the significance of the show in her grief journal. The next two articles are from Denverite. The Denver airport is looking for non-train ways to get people around, like very long bridges, by Rebecca Tauber. 
Service disruptions to the Denver International Airport train, which takes passengers between concourses, are rare, but when they do occur, they bring chaos. The train provides the only form of transportation to and from concourses B and C, so when there's an issue, waiting areas overcrowd and delays pile up as people cannot get to and from their flights. In 2022, the airport solicited proposals from private firms to engineer an alternative form of transportation during service interruptions. The Denver Post reported on more than a dozen ideas submitted to DIA, which ranged from the more realistic shuttle or tunnel to sci-fi-esque pods or gondolas. It turns out a simple bridge is the most realistic answer, according to DIA CEO Phil Washington. He said tunnels are too costly and less viable, and that shuttles would not be able to manage the airport's growing capacity. DIA expects to hit its milestone of more than 100 million passengers in 2027, five years ahead of schedule, and add four new concourses and 100 new gates by 2045. The bridges would have to be long with moving walkways and high enough for planes to pass underneath. Washington said the airport would likely want the option for concessions on the bridges as well. But the price tag, contractor, and timeline on a potential project are unclear. We're doing more detailed analysis of the ones that we have received, but these are costly, he said. They are not cheap, and so we'll continue to look at those and will continue to decide whether we should move forward with them. Rocky Horror Fans Closed Out the First Full Elitch Theater Season in Decades by Kevin Beattie It's been more than 30 years since the Elitch Theater completed a season inside their historic venue, tucked away south of 38th Avenue. After decades descending into disrepair and a 2018 storm that tore a hole in its roof, the building's operators could finally invite audiences inside. They ended their first year back in action with a bang, Rocky Horror Picture Show, with all the camp and fixings. The theater was built over a century ago. It was part of the original Elitch Gardens, the theme park that now sits by the South Platte River, which was built in the early 1890s. Greg Rowley, president of the board that presides over the theater, said the performance space hosted theater every summer until 1987. In its heyday, it was home to a summer troupe where huge stars from Hollywood's golden era got their start. People like Cecil B. DeMille, Grace Kelly, and Antoinette Perry, who'd later have an award, the Tonys, named after her. Though Rowley said some sporadic performances did find their way inside after the space closed, the building began to decay after Elitch cleared out of Denver's north side. He said there were a handful of earnest attempts to rehab the space, including one by Perry Mason star Raymond Burr, but none quite finished the job. There were a lots of fits and starts, he told us. Then, when the park moved downtown in 94, they had multiple people wanting to redevelop, and all of them said, no, we're going to tear the theater down. There's no use for that. But the city stepped up, Raleigh said, and saved the building in an effort led by former city council member Dennis Gallagher. Still, it'd take years and millions of dollars to bring the structure back to life. Raleigh said the heavy lift was well worth it. It's been a lot of effort, but I believe, well, 
our tagline is, it's Denver's oldest cultural venue, he told us. We have this wooden building that has stood for 132 years. And so I just feel like, at this point, it was meant to be here. It's meant to be fundamental to Denver. Longtime fans have been waiting for its return. New fans may have just met their new favorite place. Mary Anthony worked at Elitch Gardens when she was a teenager, and she said the memories flooded back when she stepped inside the building last week, dressed in a tiny rainbow hat and shades for Rocky Horror. She came with her sister, Lori Cumrine, who also worked with her at the park. I was 13, she was 14, and she started out as a sweeper, Anthony recalled. I got her over by the log ride with me. They remembered the park often hosted a North Denver crowd and was a centerpiece of the neighborhood when they were young. So they've been following the building's renovations closely. They hadn't actually seen Rocky Horror before. Their pal, Becky Sue Church, brought them along. So to them, this visit was all about supporting the structure's rebirth. That's why we're here, 100%, she said. We are so ecstatic to be here tonight, to reminisce. Rowley said people like Anthony have been supportive for years, but he and his board have been trying to expand their audience base. Putting on the cult movie last week, they thought, might just be the ticket to attract some new stakeholders to their cause. Before showtime, as people filtered in, it seemed like the gambit could work. I didn't know it was down the street from me, Yaz Patterson told us, but she found out quickly. Dom L., who joined her to the show, said he was glad the cost of a ticket was going somewhere useful. Bringing culture like this is the best way to keep theaters going. Lindsay Spinabelli, who showed up with a crowd of friends dressed in party hats, had a similar reaction. This is a place that we walk by all the time, she said, so it's interesting to see it open with an event that we're interested in. Ditto for Chloe Lennox. I never really realized it was here until tonight, she said. It's kind of this hidden gem. Rowley, too, was dressed up for the occasion. But it wasn't the aliens, meatloaf, or the campy, steamy scenes that really lit his fire that night. Instead, it was all of these new people finding their way into the space and the possibility that the theater was finding its way into their hearts. It's hard not to be smitten by the place. When I'm meeting some funder or someone who wants to know more about it, I always try to get them to meet me here rather than doing Zoom. Because when you get in here, you just feel the spirit and the energy of this building. I think it pulls people in for sure, he told us. It's really fun to see people get in here and fall in love. The following articles are from Westward. Residents excited to return to Sun Valley as DHA breaks ground on final buildings by Katie Cheshire. On a chilly Thursday morning in November, the Denver Housing Authority held a celebratory groundbreaking for the third phase of its major redevelopment in West Denver's Sun Valley neighborhood. The project, nearly a decade in the making, aims to usher in a new future for what has historically been one of Denver's poorest and most diverse neighborhoods by adding housing options alongside better infrastructure and food systems. I live right here in the neighborhood, and it seems like every time I look out from the hallway, there's something new, Sun Valley resident and DHA board member Craig Allen says of the ongoing work. 
To me, it's exciting to see all the progress that we've made here in Sun Valley. It's been quite the winding road to get to this point, with the final three of seven DHA-developed buildings starting construction this year. The agency launched the project in 2014 after receiving a planning grant from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. Even before then, residents had been talking for years about how to make their neighborhood better. I have to respect the people who had the vision to think about what the future could look like for this community, because it's not easy to envision, says Grace Buckley, DHA board president. It started a long time ago, but it took a lot of vision. In 2016, DHA won a $30 million HUD Choice Neighborhoods Implementation Grant that it's using to construct six of the Sun Valley buildings. The HUD Choice Neighborhoods program attempts to transform struggling neighborhoods with distressed public or HUD-assisted housing, according to its website. Since the 1950s, DHA has owned property in Sun Valley, where it had Sun Valley Homes, a 330-unit barracks-style affordable housing complex. After the current project is completed, it will have about 970 public housing units across seven buildings, according to Aaron Clark, Chief Real Estate Investment Officer for the Housing Authority. It's not just housing, either. We've been designing a riverfront park, Clark says. We've been redoing roadways. DHA has used some city bond funding to help with roadway construction. It's also invested in sidewalks, water pipes, bike lanes, and storm sewer lines across the neighborhood, which sits between the South Platte River and Federal Boulevard and includes the Denver Broncos Stadium in Power Field at Mile High. The area wasn't originally designed with an urban street grid. It had curving streets that further isolated it from the rest of Denver. Through this redevelopment, DHA is creating a street grid to help build more ways to get in and out of Sun Valley. There was a pretty famous article written by a Denver Post writer many, many years ago about the physical nature of Sun Valley and how you couldn't get out of it, said City Council President Jamie Torres, who represents West Denver at the November 2nd groundbreaking. You couldn't leave. You felt like you were trapped. And now we are standing at the intersection of future roads in this neighborhood. They get you in and out and help you see your path through and into this community. DHA has partnerships with residents and experience with neighborhood scale redevelopment. Working with longtime community members, it's been able to personalize this project to the needs of the people who live in Sun Valley. They have a lot of multi-generational families who needed more storage needed more counter space in the kitchen so that everybody can really gather and have sufficient room to prepare meals, Clark says the community told DHA. Every unit now has a washer-dryer in the unit. Those are things that were not there before. We want to be really thoughtful about who our residents are and make sure that we're meeting their needs. The in-unit laundry is a huge plus, Allen confirms. To me, this groundbreaking means getting more people off the street and into great housing, he says. There are so many amenities here. The development is also mixed income, with income-restricted units and market rate units all in the same buildings. According to Clark, the philosophy on public housing has changed over the years 
to move from warehousing people to actually building homes. We want to make sure that we're not in the business of concentrating poverty, she says. It's to have a true community, to have people from different walks of life all able to share in these buildings, share in this neighborhood. Construction on the final three buildings, dubbed Jolie, Soul, and Flow, officially began in April. Flow is the only building in the development that is 100% income restricted. It's designed to serve seniors and non-elderly disabled residents. The building will be the tallest of the bunch at 12 stories with over 200 units. We worked with the neighborhood to rezone that property so that it could be taller, Clark explains. Everything else is no higher than eight stories. The housing authority did this to give additional density to the neighborhood and more units for Flo's target populations. Jolie and Seoul are both mixed income communities. Jolie will be home to the Food Incubator Project, which will be a food hall that will provide education to residents who want to explore career paths in food entrepreneurship. The Decatur Fresh Market, which is on the ground floor of the first DHA building to open in Sun Valley, joins the food incubator in working to change the neighborhood from a food desert to a place where good grub is easily accessible. Both Jolie and Seoul have units ranging from one to four bedrooms. Jolie also has two five-bedroom units, as DHA heard from the community that those were also useful. The goal is for Jolie to be open by the end of 2024 and for Flo and Seoul to be open in the first half of 2025. DHA's self-developed buildings are expected to be completed by then, but it won't be the end of Sun Valley's revitalization. The Housing Authority is under contract with third-party market-rate developers for three parcels of land that will add about 1,000 units to the neighborhood. It's also working to create a riverfront park that will start construction next year and to clean up a former XL Energy plot of land that is designated as an Environmental Protection Agency brownfield site. Such sites need remediation from hazardous materials before they can be developed. We will still be very much engaged in the development of Sun Valley, Clark says. Also, as the neighbors move back in, just continuing to engage with them, having events. We just really want to make them proud. To complete the construction, DHA relocated the residents of the Sun Valley homes across Metro Denver. As each building is completed, DHA contacts them to see if they want to come back and what type of unit they might be interested in. Danny Stange, a Denver Chicano who offered tobacco to the four directions for the future and to heal the past at the groundbreaking, has had many family members relocated. His wife, Desiree Stange's family, lived in Sun Valley going back four generations. Some of the other younger ones, they feel a loss of that familiarity, but they also have a hope for something new, something that would be welcoming to other members in the community, Danny says. His family was worried about gentrification, displacing former residents for good, but they've since grown comfortable with DHA's mission and intention as the project has gone on. I'm very hopeful and feeling like it's going to be a positive change, he says. Allen notes how the community has stayed strong through the displacement, with Christmas toy drives and Thanksgiving breakfast baskets still being shared by former and current residents. 
They've also started a group called Sun Valley Inspirations, which hosts breakfast every Thursday as a way to keep everyone connected. It takes a long time to build a new community, and that's really what this is, Buckley says. You have to